We're going to be in Acts chapter 16. Um, you know, I saw much of my story uh, in, in some of what we're going to read today, which is going to sound kind of weird once you start reading the story. Um, but, you know, I, I moved to Nashville in 2013. Uh, my wife and I, and then we had two children at the time, so the four of us moved here together. And um, some of you know this part of my story, some of you don't, you know, but I was, before living in Nashville, my wife and I, we were church planters in Vancouver, British Columbia, and the, the move to Nashville was really hard uh, on us for a variety of reasons. And uh, one, of, one of the reasons was that, you know, I just had this sense of what God had called me to in life. I remember ever since I was 21 years old, when I was 21, that was the time, I, I'd, been, I'd been a Christian for some time at that point, but at that age, that was when I really felt called by God. Like I knew that he was inviting me into something more and where I really just said, okay, God, my life is yours. Lead me, take me where you want me. And ever since that moment at the age of 21, I kind of had this dream, this idea that God would use me for something, something in his kingdom. And I imagined that it would be in some sort of either exotic place or some sort of radical situation where people didn't know him and, and I wanted to be led by him. And, and up until we moved to Nashville, it felt like for for Amy and I, my wife, it felt like we were living into that. It felt like we were living, in, now here's the thing, we lived in Canada, a lot of you are going, Canada doesn't sound exotic or radical, but you know, when, you, when you've grown up in the southeastern United States, this idea of moving to the opposite corner of the continent, having to cross a border into another country, felt kind of radical. Moving to a place like Vancouver where it's largely unchurched, where you know, fewer than 5% of the population on average finds their space in a church on Sunday mornings, that felt kind of radical. You know, moving to a place that was far away from family, a place where, hey, in the springtime, you can be on the beach in the morning and on a mountain skiing in the afternoon, man, that felt pretty exotic. It felt amazing. And for five years, we got to live out this dream of living for God in kind of an exotic, radical place. And then in 2013, it came time to move back to the United States. And we're trying to figure out what we're going to do next. And I get this call from my friend in Nashville, Dave Clayton. And he says, hey, would you consider moving to Nashville? And I'm just, I'm not, you know, Nashville's great and all, so don't hear this the wrong way, but I honestly remember being on the phone and I said, Dave, why in the world would I move to Nashville? I was like, we've told God we'll go anywhere. I mean, we've told him we'll go anywhere. My family is close to Nashville. Like there's no sacrifice there, you know. Uh, Nashville, if you didn't know it, is in the middle of what we call the Bible Belt. In fact, many people call it the belt buckle of the Bible Belt where you can find a church on almost every single corner. I remember going, why would I ever think of moving to Nashville? And well, you all know how that turned out because here I am in Nashville. And you know, we sensed that this is where God was inviting us. And I remember when I first got here, there was kind of this tension that I began to experience. You know, I didn't, I didn't actually move here for this job. I wasn't a pastor at Ethos when I first got to Nashville. And I remember feeling this tension because when we got here, uh, the first thing that I did, I was actually working part-time jobs. I had two different part-time jobs over the first year and a half that I lived in Nashville. And I remember just feeling this tension of like, God, how in the world am I supposed to live out this radical faith you've called me to in the middle of the Bible Belt where everybody seems to already know about Jesus, everybody I talk to says they're Christian, how in the world am I supposed to live this out? How am I supposed to live it out in like the mundane day-to-day -day life of working a part-time job? And it felt like this tension where I didn't know how I could live out what God had called me to in the place where he had me. And, and I know I'm not alone in experiencing that. Many of you have probably experienced this in one way or another where you have felt called by God. You feel this higher sense of purpose in your life. 
And yet the circumstance you find yourself in right now has you asking, what in the world is going on? I, I feel this calling to do something big, and yet now I'm, I'm a stay-at-home parent and I'm changing diapers all day. How in the world did I get here? Or maybe you had, you had this sense of God was calling you to something really huge, and yet now you find yourself, you're stuck in the nine-to-five kind of mundane life of working the job, and you're like, where is God in the middle of this? Or maybe you felt passionate about starting a company and changing the world, and you got the company started, and now it feels like all you're doing is running the machine, getting stuck in the day-to-day operations. We've all had these experiences where we feel called by God, And yet, in the middle of it, we get stuck in the mundane of just living the normal, everyday life. You know, I think the story we're going to read today is going to speak into this, but I'll say this, as we're reading it, it will not feel like it's speaking into our normal reality. The story we're going to read reads more like Homer's Odyssey than it does life in Nashville 2019, and it will feel like it is this exotic, radical situation, but in the middle of it, we are going to see some significant things that have implications for the way that we live out life with Jesus in the normal, everyday life. Now, just to remind you of kind of where we are, uh, we're in the book of Acts. If you're visiting or it's your first time here, we've been walking through the book of Acts since February or since March. And uh, we've kind of had this idea of, hey, we're going to read the book of Acts because it kind of lays out the story of who the church is, where the church started. It's our DNA for who we are because we want to figure out how we live as the church today. It's important that we understand where it all began. So we've been walking through that together. And today we're going to be looking at, particularly at this man named Paul. And just several weeks ago, Josh Willis told the story of how Paul went from being this guy named Saul who persecuted the church and Christians, to now he's like given his life to Jesus. His name has been changed, and he's not persecuting churches. He's planting churches uh, everywhere that he goes. And so the, the text we're gonna read today is kind of the story of his journey. Now, this, this, kinda, this portion of the story is full of cities you've never heard of, places you've probably never heard of. So to help us understand that this is not some like totally like otherworldly experience that you cannot relate to, um, I've got a map that I want to put up on the screen. And I'm just going to tell you, this may not be helpful for some of you. You may go, man, this is the most useless thing ever. If that's you, don't worry about it. You don't have to look at the map. Just follow along in the text. But if it helps you to kind of visualize what's happening, let's go ahead and get that map up on the screen here. Um, Everything that you see here, you you should recognize it geographically if you paid attention to seventh grade geography. So you've got um, the, sorry, that wasn't a stab, sorry. Uh, The Mediterranean Sea is kind of that main body of water there. Uh, on, the, on the right side of the screen, that's Israel where Jerusalem was. That whole piece of land up at the top of the screen, that's modern day Turkey. Okay, so where modern day Turkey is, that's that on the left, upper left side of the screen where it says Achaia and Macedonia, that's modern day Greece. And so everything that we're reading today may sound completely unusual, like cities you've never heard of, but it's all taking place in real time, in real history, in real places. And so I'm going to leave this map up on the screen as I read through the text so that you can follow along. We're picking up, if you see the yellow circle there where it says Derby, that's where our story will pick up, and you'll kind of see the journey that they're on as we read it. So I'm going to start reading Acts chapter 16, verse 1. So Paul came to Derby. And then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer. That means she was a believer in Jesus, uh, but whose father was a Greek. Now, the believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of Timothy. So Paul wanted to take him along on the journey 
so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now we'll pause right there. If you're wondering how in the world circumcision works into this story, go back and listen to Dave's sermon last week, uh, which was really fun for me to watch Dave have to figure out how to talk about circumcision and male anatomy in the sermon in front of everybody. If you missed it, go back and listen to the podcast. You'll see how he did that. He actually did a great job with it. Um, but circumcision was a piece of the culture there. Um, and if you're wondering if Paul was contradicting himself here, if you were here last week, remember he was like, oh, people don't have to be circumcised. Paul wasn't doing this to save Timothy. This was not about his salvation. This was a missionary move so that the Jewish people he was going to teach would not reject Timothy. So let's keep reading. Verse four. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders that we talked about last week in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And when they came to the border of Mysia, that's on that northern side of the map there, uh, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You'll notice there the tense changed. Luke, the author of Acts, is now in the story. He's experiencing all this firsthand. Uh, verse 11, from Troas, we put out to sea and we sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. And from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So this is the word of the Lord in Acts chapter 16. Now, in the midst, I know this feels like a really kind of exotic place. It's in the, they're traveling around the Mediterranean. It feels totally unrelatable to us. But in the midst of all the travel, in the midst of all the transition and the weird cities, what we see are there are two of the most basic practices of the Christian life being held out in the midst of what was kind of an unusual lifestyle. And so um, these two basic practices are what we're going to focus on today. And I'll lay them out for you, and then we'll talk about them. The first one is this. The first one is the making of disciples. The first Christian practice that we see here is the making of disciples. And the second one is this, is walking with the Spirit. Now we're going to spend more time on that second one than on the first one, but I do want to hit on this first piece. I think it's really important. So um, what, what we find here in, in, in Acts chapter 16 is Paul is starting this journey to try to go plant churches and encourage the churches that exist. But we get this really cool picture of his priorities. He had all kinds of things going on as he journeyed. I mean, all things to take care of, all these people that are traveling together. You can imagine they're walking across continents trying to spread the gospel. And in the midst of it, we get to verse three of chapter 16. It says that, you know, he comes into Lystra and there's this young man that everybody speaks well of named Timothy. And in verse three, it says, Paul wanted to take him along. 
I love this little sentence right here where it talks about Paul. Now, there's a couple reasons that I really love it. You know, this idea that Paul wanted to take Timothy along first, it kind of reveals the posture of Paul's heart towards Timothy. The, the language here is a language of tenderness, that there was a tenderness in Paul towards this young guy named Timothy. He saw something in him. He said, I want to bring you along. You know, it reminded me of sometimes I'll be doing a project around my house and uh, I'm not the most handy of guys, but I still like to work on things every now and then. And inevitably, every project that I take on, in the middle of the project, I, it's gonna require a trip to Home Depot, a supply that I don't have, a tool that I don't own, and I have to go to the hardware store. And in the middle of that, almost every time, if my, if my kids are around, I always go find them and say, hey, do you want to come with me to Home Depot? Now, if you've ever been on a hardware run with a nine, seven, or three-year-old, you know you don't take them because they're helpful. <laughs> like, that's, that's not the reason I asked them to come with me. In fact, it actually makes it more difficult because they want to touch everything, grab everything, buy everything. My boys want to buy every single power tool in the store. They want me to pick up everything that's sharp, and I've got to tell them to put it down. It's not helpful. Why do I want to bring them along? I wanna bring them along because I love them, because I want the time with them, because there's something that happens in that time together that I cannot fabricate, I cannot concoct, I cannot make it happen. There's something valuable about that time, so I bring them along. And this is what we see Paul doing. He's on this trip, he's already got a variety of men that are traveling with him, and he sees this young guy, Timothy, and he says, I want to bring him along. There's this tenderness in Paul's voice to want to bring Timothy. But there's something else about this statement that I think is so hugely important is that it shows Paul's commitment to make disciples of Jesus. He was committed to discipleship. Now, if you're new to Christianity, this word discipleship is kind of weird. It, basically, what it means to disciple somebody is that you're trying, you are seeking to grow, mature, and develop the character of Jesus in another human being. You're walking with them intentionally so that the character of Jesus can come alive in them. And this is one of the most basic elements and practices of the Christian faith. Sometimes we forget this, you know, but Jesus, when Jesus started his ministry, he started with discipleship. He started by inviting people to follow him so that they could be transformed. And then when you get to the end of his ministry, after he's resurrected from the dead, the very last thing that he does, Matthew chapter 28, he looks at those he's been discipling and he says, hey, all authority is mine now. I want you to go and make disciples. In other words, he says, go and do exactly what I've done with you. I want you to do that for others. Go make disciples of all nations, he says. And so Paul like, gets this mandate, he understands it, and he gets to Lystra, and there's this young man, and he sees something in him. He says, I wanna bring you along. I wanna help develop the character of Jesus in you. And I love it, what we get from this relationship in the New Testament, we have two different letters that Paul has written to this young man, Timothy, much later after they've journeyed together for years. And one of the cool things in that is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says to Timothy the same thing that Jesus says to all of his disciples. He says, hey, all the things I've given you, all the things I've shown you, all the things I've taught you, I want you to turn around and give them to others who will turn around and give them to others. Disciple-making, reproducing the character of Jesus in other people is one of the most central and basic practices of the Christian faith. But here's the reality, we have been presented with a version of Christianity that has robbed us of the joy of what God has for us in that purpose. You know, I think in North American Christianity, so often 
what we are kind of, what we are told, what we are shown is that to be a Christian means you put your faith in Jesus, you get your ticket stamped for heaven, and then you spend the rest of your life going to church when you're supposed to and trying to be a good person. And then we wonder why, after years of doing all the right things, we feel disillusioned and bored with following Jesus. I see more and more men my age, and I know this is true for women as well, but I'm just a guy, so I'm just gonna speak into it. I see more and more men who get to be a certain age and they just feel bored because the version of Christianity they've been given has been completely robbed of its most divine purpose of helping to spread the character of Jesus in those around them. And what we've been invited into is something that feels lifeless, purposeless, and the only goal is to make sure that I make my way into heaven. I'm convinced that American Christianity is floundering right now, not because the cultural deck out there is stacked against us. You know, we're kind of told all the time, well, the American culture is hard, it's against the church, that's why it's so hard. The culture out there has always been hard for Christians. I mean, think about the story we read last week. These Christians in the first century, they weren't dealing with uh, you know, permissive pluralism or con- radical consumerism that was ravaging. They, they were dealing with idolatry, with drinking blood and sacrificing animals to idols. It was still hard. It was a culture that pressed against the ways of Jesus. American Christianity is not floundering because the cultural deck is stacked against us. No, I'm convinced that it is the culture in here, the culture in the church that will be our downfall because American Christianity has settled for a version of following Jesus that robs us of our divine purpose of reproducing and maturing the character of Jesus in others. It's what you were made for. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are called into either be discipled by someone who can help you grow or to turn around and disciple somebody else as they grow. It's part of what it means to follow Jesus. And so I love this part of the story where we see that Paul, in the middle of living a life that feels unrelatable to us, he does the one thing that all of us are invited to do. He pauses to bring along a younger guy and to begin to invest in him so that he can grow and mature in Jesus. Now, the second thing that we see in this story is this idea of walking with the Spirit. You know, it's such, a, such an interesting story when you get to verse six, you see Paul and his companions that included Timothy and they begin to kind of journey across what is modern day Turkey. And Paul has this desire to go into these new regions, to these new cities, so that he can proclaim the good news of Jesus to anyone who would hear. And yet what we see is that the Holy Spirit prevents him or the spirit of Jesus does not allow him. And we don't necessarily know exactly what that looked like. Luke doesn't tell us. You know, sometimes the Spirit's leading, uh, it comes through circumstance. So some people say that, well, maybe what was happening was somebody on their team got sick, you know, and so the Holy Spirit, they, they interpreted that as the Holy Spirit saying, no, we need to get to Troas because this guy Luke was there, the guy who wrote Acts, Luke, he was actually a physician. And so some people suspect that they interpreted somebody's illness as a need, the Holy Spirit was leading them to get to where they could have a physician join their team. Some people say that the Holy Spirit leading them came through prophecy, Uh, Silas, one of the guys who was a part of this team, we're told in Acts 13 that he was a prophet and he was sent out with Paul. And so some people say, well, maybe it was Silas listening to the Lord and sharing a prophetic word that kept them from going into these places. Some people say it may have been a dream or a vision. We don't really know exactly how the Spirit led them, but we know that the Spirit was preventing them from going to the places that Paul wants to go. Now, this is where it gets really interesting that I think all of us can kind of connect with. Here's Paul 
and he's facing roadblocks from God in doing the very thing that he felt called by God to do. That Paul's wanting to do something good. You know, you read through the Bible, there are these places where it says that God frustrates the plans of those who stand in opposition to him. You can read that in, in Job 5 or Nehemiah 4, where God frustrates the plans of those who are opposed. But Paul was not opposed to God. Paul's on this journey and he's actually trying to accomplish something good. He's trying to plant churches and proclaim the good news of Jesus. And for whatever reason, God keeps putting roadblocks in his path, preventing him from going where he wants to go. He feels called by Jesus to do this thing. And yet he's hitting roadblocks. The spirit of Jesus is preventing him from doing the very thing he feels called to do. I wonder how many of us have been in this space where there's this thing that we want to do, this good thing. We not only want to do it, we feel called to do it. We feel led by God to do it. And yet as we pursue it, we hit roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. You know, I think some of you, you came to Nashville because you thought this was the place that God was inviting you into that next big thing for your life. You came here thinking you would get the perfect job. You came here thinking you would find the perfect spouse. You came here thinking you would find breakthrough in whatever your career may be, and then you got here, and it feels like God keeps placing these roadblocks in your way or things keep happening, circumstances to prevent you from living into the thing you want to do. This is what I experienced. In, in 2013, I, I did not actually move here to be a pastor at Ethos. In fact, Amy and I, my wife and I, we actually thought that the Lord had invited us to move here to plant another church. And we were gonna work alongside Ethos and we had this idea that, hey, we're gonna live in East Nashville, we're gonna plant a church in East Nashville. And it all seemed perfect in my mind. My parents grew up in East Nashville. They graduated from Stratford High School. My, my, my grandparents lived in Inglewood my whole life and now I went away and God called me back and now he's gonna use my life to start this new thing in the neighborhood. I'm going back to my roots. It felt perfect. And yet in the middle of it, every time we tried to get started, there'd be this momentum going. We would, we would host uh, parties in parks in East Nashville. Some of you that are here, you know, I see the Meltons here and the Bandys here and I see Michael Free and Olivia Free. It's like all these people that were here that were a part of this thing, we tried to get going. And yet as it would start gaining momentum, it would just kind of stop. It would fizzle, it would fall apart. And I remember being like, God, what is the deal? You called me here to do this thing. I'm trying to do this thing, and yet it feels like there's this roadblock. You know, one of the problems we have is that so often, whenever we experience these roadblocks from God, we interpret them as rejection from God. We feel like, man, God has put up a roadblock. God is rejecting me, when in reality, the roadblocks are not rejection from God. It's really just a redirection from God. Because God has something different for us. Psalm chapter 33, verse 10. I'm just gonna read this to us real quick. Psalm 33, 10 says this. It says, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. That sounds really frustrating. But listen to verse 11. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. You know, so often we think that the Lord is throwing up a roadblock that is a rejection of who we are, but no, the Lord is redirecting because the plans of the Lord are perfect. His will is perfect. He knows what he's doing. He's got you in the palm of his hand and he's trying to lead you for his good purposes for your life. But when we feel it as a rejection from God, there's kind of this danger that we run into that often we, we feel like God is rejecting us and there's kind of one of two responses we tend to fall into when we feel like God is rejecting us through a roadblock. One, one response is that 
we, we give up on God because we feel like God gave up on us. And so often we hit the roadblock. We feel rejected by God. And the temptation is to give up on him. And sometimes we don't do this outright, you know, out loud where people can see it. So often it happens in here in our hearts. This posture of our heart towards God becomes one where, man, I can't trust him. He didn't do the thing that he said he was gonna do. He didn't lead me the way I wanted him to lead me. He didn't take me to the place I wanted to go. He didn't give me the relationship that I wanted him to give me. He didn't give me the job that I wanted. And so our posture becomes to become very, very skeptical of God, very cynical towards God. And we begin to reject him because we feel as though he rejected us. Another dangerous reaction when feeling rejected by God by a roadblock is that we kind of go, you know what, God, I see the roadblock, but I'm pretty sure that's the thing that I want. And we, we're just gonna barge through the roadblock. Hey, I know all my friends are telling me this relationship is bad for me, but man, I want it. I know everyone's, I know the job didn't come through the way that I wanted it to, but I'm just gonna keep pursuing this career. God, I know you've put this roadblock here, but I'm just gonna keep going because it's what I want to do. And when we feel rejected by God, we feel a roadblock from God, we decide to burst right through it. But there's another way of embracing and understanding the guidance of the Spirit. You see, God is not rejecting Paul and his crew, his traveling companions in this story. He's simply redirecting them. It's what Psalm 33 that I just read describes, is that he has purposes for them that they cannot understand. Yes, Paul had good things that he wanted to do, but the Lord had something better. And so he begins redirecting him. And this is what's so significant about this story is that up until this point in the story of Acts, the church has only spread in what was then Asia Minor or in the Middle East. It was, it was in Jerusalem, it was in Samaria and Judea, and it had begun to go up into Asia Minor or modern day Turkey, but it had not yet expanded onto the continent of Europe. That the gospel of Jesus had not been proclaimed beyond the continent of Asia. And here in this moment, Paul is trying to break into other places in Asia. And the Lord's going, no, Paul, I'm taking you to a brand new place, to a brand new people where the gospel has yet to be proclaimed. And so they end up in Troas and they add Luke to their team and they have this vision. They have this vision of a man in Macedonia that says, will you come over and will you help us? And as a result, you read the rest of this story and we see this church planted in Philippi. And in Philippi, it's this beautiful, the first European church plant. And out of that, we have another letter in the New Testament. This is the book that we call Philippians was a letter written to this church that was planted in this city in Philippi. And out of that letter, we have some of the most beautiful descriptions of what it looks like to posture yourself in the posture of Jesus. You know, this verse that we always use, I can do anything through Christ who, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's in the book of Philippians that we never would have had any of that if, if Paul was not willing to keep walking with the Spirit's guidance towards the plans that God had for him over and above his own plans. Now, how do, we, how do we do this? How do we walk with the Spirit in the midst of what feels like ordinary, mundane, everyday lives? I think there's three kind of simple things that we see in this story. And the first one is so important that we don't do it alone. We don't do this alone. Walking with Jesus, listening to the Spirit, it was never intended to be a solo endeavor. Your walk with Jesus is not just about you and God. 
It's about you and God and me and you and us and we and all of us in this thing together. And we see that so clearly, right? I love when you get to verse 10 of chapter 16, the Spirit's been redirecting them, redirecting them. Then Paul has this vision and look at verse 10. It says, after Paul had seen the vision, we, plural, collective, got ready at once to leave for Macedonia and concluding, that verb concluding goes with the we, we concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. In other words, Paul doesn't have a vision in which wake up by himself and then set out for Macedonia all on his own. No, he wakes up, he shares the vision with his community. The community discerns and prays. Then they go, this is the thing that God's inviting us to. And collectively, they pack up their stuff and they hop on a ship and they start to sail for Macedonia. Walking with the Spirit, the way that we do this, the way that we, when we feel roadblocks coming, we get together with other brothers and sisters in Jesus and we just share it with one another. We do it together. But there's another part of this that's really important. It's not just that we do it together. It's that we keep submitting our ways to Jesus's ways. Now, this is so important in walking with the Spirit. It's so important in understanding how we discern God's will for our lives is that we take our plans, the things that we think are important, and we submit. To submit means you just place it underneath. We place it underneath Jesus's plans. And we say, Jesus, your plans are supreme. Your plans are what we want to follow. Now, this is not always easy to figure out how to do. It's not necessarily this practical thing that you do so much as a posture of your heart. That as you gather with community to discern how the Spirit may be leading you in the midst of roadblocks, in the midst of redirections, it's important that in our hearts, we posture ourselves as men and women who are placing our plans as submissive to Jesus's plans. So we do it in community. We do it in submission to Jesus. And the third thing in order for us to keep walking with the Spirit is this. We keep our eyes open for where God is at work. You know, sometimes in the midst of being redirected, in the midst of roadblocks, it's really easy to become cynical. It's really easy to go, yeah, 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 God's at work. Yeah, 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 sure, you know, whatever. To become suspicious because he's not doing it in my life. He's probably not doing it in anybody else's life. But, but here's one of the things that's so important that we see in this story is that Paul, whose plans have been frustrated after time and time again, he's trying to go here, trying to go here, and the Lord keeps frustrating those plans. He gets on this boat. He sails from Macedonia with all these guys. He goes from one city to the next, and he ends up in Philippi. And when he first gets there, there was probably a bit of disappointment and discouragement. You see, Paul, whenever he traveled to plant new churches, he would always, the first place he would go in any new town would be the synagogue. The synagogue was the gathering place uh, where Jews would gather to worship. And so Paul would go to the synagogue because he knew he would find people there who loved God, who worshiped God, and he could share the good news about the Son of God with them. Well, he gets to Philippi, and there's no synagogue. You know, in order to have a synagogue in a city, you needed 10 Jewish men to run the synagogue. That was just kind of the custom and the rule. And there was no synagogue in Philippi, which means there weren't even 10 faithful Jewish men in the entire city. Imagine how discouraged Paul must have felt when he gets there. But what does he do? He doesn't just let that defeat him. He doesn't let the roadblock or the redirection discourage him or turn him into a cynic. He keeps his eyes open for where God is at work already. And he finds himself on this riverbank and he finds a place of prayer. And despite the fact that his vision was of a Macedonian man inviting to become, the first fruit that he sees is amongst a group of women who are praying and worshiping God by the river. And they begin to proclaim the gospel. And the first European church is planted at Lydia's house. You know, sometimes we, get so, we, we tend to get so hung up on what's not going well 
that we miss out on the things that God's doing right in front of us. You know, that mundane job that you find yourself in. Did you know that there's probably somebody in that place that God has for you to share the gospel with, to encourage, to speak life to, uh, to pray for? There's somebody right there God has purpose for you, and yet sometimes we get so caught up in what's not going well, we miss it. You know, I, I think about the season of raising kids that I find myself in that many of you find yourself in. And you know, it's like, man, it's easy in the middle of raising small children to look at my friends who are empty nesters or my friends that don't have any kids and go, man, they get to do all the cool stuff. They get to go travel, they get to see things, they get, they're always doing stuff at night with their friends. I'm at home changing diapers because my three-year-old won't stay in bed. She keeps, she keeps messing herself, despite the fact that I keep trying to go in the potty. She won't use the potty. It's like a so frustrating situation. Like, why don't I get to do the things that everybody else is doing? But what happens is we miss the season that God has me in. The season that he has you in is so significant. If you're raising kids, you are discipling your children to know Jesus, to grow up and walk with Jesus. It's one of the most important things you can do. Don't miss it. He's not blocking you from accomplishing anything. He's bringing you right into the situation where you get the privilege of raising up one of his kids to love him and to know him. You know, or I think about the relationships that you experience that fall apart. Sometimes some of you right now, you're in the middle of just relationship, headache. It's so hard. The relationship you thought was the one fell apart and it feels like a roadblock or a rejection from God. And God's going, no, no, I see you. I know you. My plans for you are good. It's not that I've rejected you. I have something else for you or someone else for you, but my plans are good and trustworthy. Will you submit? Will you walk with me? And so we don't do it alone. We submit our ways to Jesus' ways and we keep our eyes open for where God is at work because he's faithful. He does not reject his children. It's not the kind of father that he is. And so, you know, how, how, do, how, do, we, how do we apply this? How do we wrap this up? What do we do with all this? And I, I think, you know, there's these two, two practices that we see here for followers of Jesus. One is, is making disciples and the other is walking in the spirit. And I'll address both of these in kind of action items. You know, some of you, you've been in church for a long time and, and it feels kind of like, okay, I'll go to church again. I'll go to church again. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll join a house church. I'll do all the things they tell me to do. But did you know there was more for you? You know, our church is full of young believers, new believers, pre-believers, and what they need and what they long for, trust me, I know, because I talk to many of them, what they long for is for an older, more mature, experienced follower of Jesus to come alongside them and to bring them along, to walk with them, to mentor them, to encourage them, to pray for them, to share their life with them. And if you're looking for more purpose, this is what God made you for. <laughs> He called you to this. Now, I know you may be sitting here going, I don't know how to do that. The generation before me didn't do it. Like, nobody did that for me. How do I do it for others? And so, you know, I know I keep talking about grow classes up here, and I'm like, it's because there's some good stuff. Uh, Sam Parnell, who's organizing our grow class, he's leading a grow class that starts at the beginning of the July that is called the Rhythms of Discipleship. That maybe you know you need to be investing your life into someone else, but you don't know what it looks like. Man, sign up for the grow class. Go take it, spend six weeks walking with Sam, figuring out how in the world do I begin to share, what are the rhythms I live into to share my life with others? 
And if you're sitting here this morning, you go, man, I know I need that. I need to be discipled. I need to be shaped. Well, sign up for the grow class because you might find someone in there who is looking for someone else to walk alongside them. But here's one of the things on an ongoing basis that we're all called to in here. If you are an experienced, mature believer, will you keep your eyes open for where God is at work right here in our body or maybe where you work or maybe where you live because there is probably somebody around that God's inviting you to invest in, to love on and to share the walk with Jesus with. Now, that second point of walking with the Spirit. Some of you are in the midst of redirection. And here's what I'll invite you to do this morning, is to, is to start by getting in community. Don't do it alone. You know, we don't take communion every week just because it's like this ritualistic thing that we have to do. You know, we come around communion, these little cups, and this little piece of bread, because it reminds us that we are part of one body, the body of Jesus. He gave his body, he gave his blood so that we could be adopted into God's family, so that we could become part of his body, and we do it together. It's called communion. (laughs) You hear the word community in there. And so this morning, I just wanna encourage you, as you get the bread, as you get the cup, if you're in the middle of a redirection, if you're in the middle of feeling like you are rejected by God, don't just sit there and take the cup and the bread by yourself and commiserate. That will be tempt- you'll be tempted to do that. I, w- I wanna encourage you, find somebody. Find somebody that you came with. Share with them, say, hey, here's, the, here's the, the redirection I'm feeling. Here's the roadblock I'm facing. Share it with somebody, let them pray for you. If you don't have anyone here with you, we'll have men and women at the Respond Banner over here. We would love to pray with you, encourage you, because we do this together as we discern how the Spirit is leading us in real time. As the church, two of the most basic practices that we live into is we make disciples and we walk with the Spirit and we do it together with one another. So I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna go to communion. I want you to get with some people around you. Just share how the Lord's leading you, where he's calling you. Pray for one another, encourage one another, and then we'll continue in worship to the Lord. Lord, I love you. I thank you, Father, that you see us just where I started, just thanking you. Thank you for leading us in real time, for being a God that doesn't call us into a way of life and then leave us on our own to figure it out. But Lord, you lead us. And so we invite you, Lord, as we come to the table, as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, the price you paid, Lord, as you remind us as we take the bread and the cup, that the last thing you want to do is reject us. Lord, the bread and the cup, they are a reminder that you have paid every price for us. You have gone to every length to bring us into your family, to adopt us as your kids. So Lord, would you encourage us now as we commune, as we break the bread, as we take the cup, would you knit us together in the name of Jesus? Amen.